This is episode 248 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Biomaterials and Tissue Engineering, with Dr. Nathaniel Hipsch. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. Dalon James and Dr. Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Stem Cell Podcast, please rate us and leave a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Nathaniel Hipsch from Washington University in St. Louis on the podcast to talk about his research on microscale models of the heart and synthetic extracellular matrices. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news that's coming right up. But first, do you work with human pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes? Use stem cells, stem diff cardiomyocyte media and supplements to differentiate, enrich, expand, and preserve functional HPSC-derived cardiomyocytes. Stem diff cardiomyocyte media is compatible with human embryonic stem and induced pluripotent stem cells, and the resulting cardiomyocytes can be used for disease modeling, drug discovery, and cardiotoxicity screening. You can learn more at www dot stemcell.com slash stem diff dash cardio. We want to start off with a, a paper that's very relevant to one of the hottest subfields of stem cell biology. Of course, this is a really major point of emphasis at the ISCR annual meeting not too long ago. We're, of course, talking about modeling early human development. Okay, really incredible model systems coming out in this area. And a friend of the show, Jun Wu, has published a very exciting cell paper on this very topic. Uh, of course, Junwu has been working on these uh, blastoid models for a while now over at his lab at UT Southwestern. We actually had him on the show talking about this technology not too long ago. And so here, they're uh, modeling post-implantation stages of human development in early organogenesis with these, what they call stem cell-derived perigastroloids. And we'll we'll dive into the the study a little bit about really what's uh what's exciting here. I mean, the big takeaway is they are able to generate some pseudo structures here that haven't really been done before in these other early embryo models. No, notably, the formation of a an early yolk sac like structure. So that's really exciting to see. It's a it's a robust method to basically generate an integrated model of human perigastrulation development. And I'm sure you have a lot to say about this, given your expertise in this particular area. And, you know, this isn't the first time that human gastrulation has been modeled. There's been these gastroloids that have been around for a little while, but they the key is they lack the essential extra embryonic cells that are needed for embryonic development, morphogenesis, and, and patterning as, as well. Um, and what they're describing is a robust and efficient method that actually allows these what they call human extended pluripotent stem cells to actually self-organize into these embryo-like structures. And they have published on this pretty extensively over the last couple of years and have shown some really cool uh, presentations on this as well lately. Um, so these are self-organizing embryo structures, what they call perigastroloids, which have both the embryonic the epiblast, and also the extraembryonic hypoblast tissues. Uh, and these things aren't viable, of course, because you know there's a, a certain lineage like the trophoblast lineage that's just not available here. 
which is also very critical when it comes to the ethical side of the study, of course. But it's really neat. They're recapitulating critical stages of human perigast relation development. They can, like I said, form these yolk sac cavities, amniotic yolk sac cavities, develop the bilaminar and trilaminar embryonic discs, these really early stage structures that you would find in, in embryonic development, human embryonic development, specifying primordial germ cells, initiating gastrulation, some early hints at neurulation. This is interesting stuff, really interesting stuff. And again, very early levels of organogenesis. They did a bunch of single cell, figured out the, of course, you got to compare these things to the real deal compared the transcriptomic similarities between these advanced human perigastroloids and primary perigastrulation cell types from both human and non-human primates. So that's a nice evolution angle to the study. Um, the I think, again, really neat study for looking at early embryo development, but I'm a big fan of the scalability of this technology. They show how they're able to very reproducibly generate these things using these aggregation methods, um, you know, generating these uh, uh, epiblast uh, populations, combining them together with the other populations. And basically in this agri-well culture, there's a, a self-organization that happens. Really exciting. I mean, they're not they're not engineering these things. It's the cells, they, they know themselves where to go and sorting into these epiblasts and hypoblast-like compartments really beautiful video imaging of how these organizations are able to happen. They have these endogenous fluorescent reporters that they can use to, to show the organization of these, these populations. Um, so check it out. I mean, definitely take a look. There's even some really awesome electron microscopy to further characterize the, the yolk sac-like structures and also just the overall perigastroloid structure. Um, I, I think it's just a reflection of how quickly this field is moving. And you know, ethically, you have to take into consideration. This is not viable. These are not viable, and they straight up say that in the very beginning of the paper. But these things are certainly moving along. And you you bring up phrases like neurulation. That's going to catch some catch some eyes. You know what I mean? Um, but again, uh, just another amazing paper in the cadre of papers that the the Wu Lab is putting out over the last couple of years. Yeah, this is, uh, this is, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that this paper is the culmination of everything that developmental biologists have been trying to do since the beginning. I mean, that's, that's the scale of this. Being able to visualize uh, human development uh, on this scale with this level of reproducibility, you know, right before eyes in a dish. And as you said, not the entirety of the totality of human development. Uh, that could give rise to a, a, a human being. Um, and there was a very careful ethics statement at the end and will be a part of every one of these stories is a really rigorous ethical uh, unpacking of, of the design and the results. But you said it, I mean, neurulation, germ cells, it's like you're you're hitting all the, you know, hot potatoes in in the ethics and application of stem cell biology but putting that aside it's really just a beautiful story and a, a beautiful set of data and i think that this race that's been going on we've been talking about it now for you know onwards of a month and we're not going to stop between magdalena zernica goats and jacob Hanna. you know put june Wu in there a lot of a lot of others a lot of people working on this um rowan carvis 
her name ringing out again. Uh, everybody's working on this. It's a race, and I think everybody's got to tip their cap to the Wu group here because this story really is, again, the culmination of everything we've been trying to do since since my beginning. It's the thing I set out to do when I started with the Xenopus. Here we are. Congratulations to you, Jun Wu, and your group. This is really a beautiful story. It is indeed. And I think, you know, popular media right now is really excited about other aspects of science. I mean, talking about these like room temperature superconductors and AI. And don't forget us, you know, don't forget about us stem cell biologists. You know, we're doing cool stuff too. And this is a, a reflection of just that. I mean, this is just a an astounding study. It is a race. I think we can adequately call it a race because there are multiple high power groups that are pushing this field forward so quickly. Um, and I mean, we're just going to keep on covering the papers as they come out. But again, wanted to emphasize some of the limitations here. The big one is, of course, the exclusion of the trophoblast population. And I think that needs to be emphasized. There was limited development here be to only you know, day 11 or so, day 10, day 11, which corresponds to Carnegie stage seven, uh, seven or eight. So again, not pushing the envelope too far yet. Um, but hey, we're seeing so many cool things. Segmentation clock change has seven. We're seeing neurulation. We're seeing primitive streak. For I could go on and on. Trilaminar disc formation, primordial germ cells. It's hitting everything here. Um, so I'm just super excited about what's going to come out next from the June Wood Lab and other groups too. Yes, as am I. Um, and you can wonder now at, at this point in your own lab, is it maybe going to make more sense to just make a, a embryo model to get to the tissues, your target tissue? Um, I mean, maybe it may be seem a little cumbersome now, but this tech is only going to get better and better as you said uh it's scalable um and reproducible so optimization is the next key and i i you know for better and worse i think mostly for better we're going to push these embryos farther but enough about embryo models you know people are still running diffs in their lab or ruin there's still some knowledge to be gained in in the early day efforts i remember the first thing we ever did is we try to make a recipe for everything you know, recipe for even primary germ layer differentiation. There's still people out there working on that because understandingly and understanding the, the regulatory mechanisms of, of cell differentiation, uh, particularly the early stages, you know, it's not just academic. I think it's going to be critical to scaling up and getting really efficient differentiation and, and you know, reliable, uh, getting the right cells. I think, you know, the plasticity of these cells could be a liability. We've got to get the right cells. We've got to understand how to get there. There's been a lot of work to un unravel the transcription factors, you know, signaling pathways, epigenetics, even long coding, non-coding RNAs. But, um, you know, one maybe stepchild there is a metabolism. Metabolic processes are good candidates for what could regulate exit from pluripotency uh, to initiate differentiation, right? Because it's really dynamic and the metabolism is gonna dictate the activity of the mitochondria and all the other cellular machinery, right? Now lipids, uh, mostly considered important components of like the cell architecture, right? The membrane um, of the cell and all the organelles. So they're gonna be critical in cell proliferation. You gotta make more membrane, tissue regeneration also gotta make more cells, make more membrane. Um, 
but also products of lipid metabolism have been shown to be critical uh, in mediating uh, cell fate determination in different contexts, like endothelial to mesenchymal transition, even in uh, somatic cell reprogramming. Uh, you got to fire up the, the metabolism to, to accommodate that drastic change in cell identity. But the role of lipid metabolism in early embryonic stem cell differentiation is less understood. Uh, but there's a lot of reasons to suggest that lipid metabolism may be important, right? So uh, this is a story from Wei Zhang in Wuhan University in China, uh, where they used chemicals, small molecules, and, and CRISPR gene editing to interfere with fa fatty acid oxidation or, or fatty acid synthesis. Uh, this is a DevCell paper, love DevCell. Um, very basic, basic story, but I think critical and a good reminder that the work's also being done out there all over in all those labs. Um, and here they showed uh, very straightforward results. Inhibition of fatty acid th synthesis promotes human endoderm differentiation um, uh, while blockading fatty acid oxidation impairs that differentiation. Uh, and mechanistically, they show that the reduced de novo fatty acid synthesis and enhanced uh, oxidation both uh, cause accumulation of this in intracellular acetyl-CoA. And the acetyl-CoA acetylates MAD3, which is a known effector of TGF-beta signaling, specifically active and nodal branch. That causes nuclear localization and activation of the downstream targets of that branch of TGF-beta signaling and promotes endoderm differentiation, right? So it's a, it's a nice tidy study, I think, with a, a, elegant methods to attack a really basic question and identify uh, this relationship between fatty acid synthesis and oxidation and the shift really in that metabolism and in what role that plays in regulating human endoderm differentiation. And yeah, I mean, granted, basic study, maybe academic, but down the line, I think in, in addition to all the other methods, which can be expensive, you know, recombinant proteins, you could here modulate uh, metabolism here to maybe have a shortcut. Talk to Paul Burge about this. Maybe have a shortcut to differentiation by tweaking some of the cellular metabolism without having to spend a thousand bucks, right? So it's important for, for practical reasons as well. Um, and, and a really nice study. Arun, what's your take? Yeah, I think for one, it's great to see that differentiation is still being fine-tuned and there's still a lot of work that has to happen when it comes to fine-tuning differentiation. I mean, this is looking at, you know, endoderm differentiation in particular and having an interesting connection with TGF beta signaling as, as well there. I mean, the parallel that I like to make is perhaps not even in differentiation per se, but maturation. We know that regulating fatty acid synthesis and fatty acid-based metabolism is critical for maturation of other lineages and mesoderm and cardiomyocytes, right? I mean, there have been a lot of studies that have been basically altering, and you refer to Paul Burridge, altering the media composition to further drive cardiomyocyte maturation by regulating the amount of fatty fatty acid that's actually present in the the media. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a it's an it's a differentiation slash maturation axis that maybe is not 
as quote sexy as some of the other you know signaling based approaches or small molecule chemical or protein based differentiation approaches but regulating metabolism i think is is a critically important component of that differentiation uh question and the the maturation question as well so i think it's it's good to that it's getting its uh it's its shine here in this particular dev cell study and we love dev cell we love covering stuff that comes out of DevCell. I don't think DevCell gets enough love, uh, but we're going to give it its love here on this show. Yeah, man, we've been plugging DevCell a lot. Somebody might think we have like a conflict or anything. I can say for myself, <laughs> at least I have no papers in review at DevCell. I just, Same. I just love it. I just love it. Yeah. I'm, being, I'm being frank and honest. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, not just the hacking metabolism for practical diff of endoderm but also maybe basic insight we'll have to get back into the embryo models i guess to to look look down that rabbit hole but you gotta wonder if maybe uh metabolism early uh perturbations in metabolism may also be contributing to pregnancy loss because you have the you know early gas relation stages i don't know but the, these basic studies have have really they're far-reaching because they are so basic they had a fundamental mechanisms and therefore have, I think, uh, broad import. So yeah, another, another plug, uh, for this fine story. We got to have some, somebody from DevCell on the show at this point. I think it's just a matter of time with the amount of plugging that we're doing for that journal, but we do love DevCell. We do. And I don't have any conflicts of interest either. Don't worry. Anyways, moving on to uh, a pretty prominent paper that's coming out of UPenn. Um, this has gotten a, a lot of publicity recently. This is in vivo hematopoietic stem cell modification by mRNA delivery. This is pretty impressive. This is a science paper uh, coming from the lab of uh, Hamide Paris at UPenn, but this is a hugely collaborative effort. Drew Weissman is on this story, Stefano Ravella. And this is one of the, in my mind, the, the, the holy grails of modern gene therapy is being able to modify cell products cells in vivo without extracting you know stuff for say like CAR T therapy doing your modification ex vivo and putting it back into the patient this is in vivo hsc modification by mrna delivery and of course we talk about hscs a lot it's one of your favorite cell types you know, hematopoietic stem cells, bone marrow stem cells are the source of all blood in the body, of course. And for patients with these blood disorders, you need bone marrow transplantation. And, uh, you know, healthy bone marrow can be a really highly successful therapy and curative for certain populations and conditions as well. And so what they did here, and I got to highlight the first author, Laura Breda, they designed a strategy to actually reprogram bone marrow stem cells directly in the body without the need of donor cells or without using, say, toxic conditioning regimens like chemotherapy or radiation. There's a, a huge amount of literature that's talking about the downsides of doing this, right? So the key here was delivering messenger RNA to bone marrow stem cells by uh, IV injection in these lipid nanoparticles that are targeting CD117 on hematopoietic stem cells, okay? And there are a few caveats of having CD one one seven, and I'll I'll get I'll just go ahead and name it. Um, CD one one seven is apparently also expressed on some populations in the lung, so specificity may be something that they have to improve on here. But the key, but the key here is again this lipid nanoparticle that's encapsulating this mRNA. 
um, and is, is basically targeting the stem cell factor receptor C117 on HSCs and questions about specificity, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it, the results were pretty astounding. So they delivered the anti-human CD117 lipid nanoparticle editing system and caused near complete correction of a sickle cell population in, in HSCs. Okay, that's that's great. In vivo and ex vivo. So the ex vivo correction was there. They did the ex vivo validation. And then they did the in vivo delivery of this pro apoptotic uh, P53 complex with the CD117 lipid nanoparticles. It impacted the HSC function. It, it again, critically, it allowed for non genotoxic conditioning of HSCs. Um, and the, just broadly thinking about this, the ability to target the HSCs in vivo is is hugely important because this is going to offer less ex vivo manipulation. You don't have to worry as much about the genotoxicity conditioning regimens for these, you know, hematopoietic stem cells. Um, it could be a, a, a golden thing. It could be just really a killer app for in vivo genome editing to cure a variety of genetic disorders. And I was diving into this a little bit more. This is actually a similar strategy that was used in a paper that we covered last year, where another UPenn group, more on the cardiac side of things, they were targeting, um, they were basically generating these custom CAR T cells to target, target fibrosis in the heart, uh, in mouse tissue. And to actually make that custom modification of those CAR Ts, they did an in vivo modification using these lipid nanoparticles and mRNAs. Um, I actually totally forgot that that was the case, but hey, th this is, in my mind, a, a holy grail in this field in genome editing, in, in gene therapy. Uh, it'll fix a lot of problems that are associated with gene therapy, especially when this genotoxic conditioning regimens. So if you can do everything in vivo, I think it's going to solve a lot of issues, and I'm so excited about what happens next here. Yeah, you know, ever since um, we talked with uh, Shannon McKinney Freeman, it really got me thinking about gene correction, and and if you correct these sickle cell patients near, you know, in their twenties, thirties, whatever, in adulthood, that you got to wonder about all the stress that's been on that in the hematopoietic compartment from the sickle cell trait, and whether or not those cells are are pretty fatigued to begin with. So it, it really raises the importance, I think, of addressing these diseases really early in young people. Um, and this is a way to do that in a way that's much less uh, invasive um, and potentially, uh, uh, you know, more effective even. So I'm all about it. But I think given that we're talking about treating young people or treating people with a long life ahead of them, the, the safety and the, the, you know, the longevity, longitudinal uh, assessments of safety is all the more critical. And in this case, I just wonder, uh, as I'm sure the authors and reviewers did too. So, you know, this isn't my idea, but like the specificity really has to be, you know, perfect uh, almost. Right. And, I know that any kind of interest intravenous delivery, but specifically with the LNPs, you get huge take up in the liver. And I know, of course, that the paper did a lot to address the degree of specificity. But I think one of the major limitations of this is going to be applying this in, in human population moving forward is, yeah, the study design. You know, in mice and that scale, 
can you scale that up to to larger patients and, and get you know no liver retention and will that lead to any kind of toxicity the off-target thing with ckit in the lung and elsewhere i mean ckit is a lot of places so yeah there's a lot of questions but for sure you know the 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 end game here is is an amazing um has amazing impact and i think that some variation of this is ultimately going to be what revolutionizes these all kinds of things like adoptive therapies you're talking about there with the car t even reprogramming in vivo or genetic therapies like it doesn't matter whatever you want the hematopoietic cell to do you can tap the endogenous compartment instead of doing this totally non-physiological mobilization modification reintegrate like it's it's not what cells want to do right so yeah this the, and c2 uh, modification i think is really an amazing amazing tech and has amazing potential. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then extending this to beyond blood cells potentially. I mean, how do you further target other populations um, to to do something similar? I mean, yeah, and they were very upfront about it when it came to the limitations of this approach and just in general, the limitation with LNPs, these lipid nanoparticles, like you alluded to, the liver tropism. And there's tropism for all sorts of these vectors, like AAV has its own tropism. You know, there's some cardiotropism, for example. Um, and again, to, to get around it, you have to have specific antibodies that can specifically target the cells that you want. I mean, CD117, I think, at least from the context of the study, was pretty good, but it's not perfect. So I think specificity in your targeting is so critical. Um, and uh, the other thing that I just wanted to mention here is not so much a negative, but very much a positive. It's it's the validation of this sort of work ex vivo, because they actually show that they can deliver all different kinds of genome editing systems. These like next gen genome editing systems that we've covered on the show. These like adenine base editors, for example. You can deliver those using this approach to HSCs ex vivo, right? So that's very powerful because adenine-based editors are much more precise than your traditional CRISPR-Cas9-based approach, which is inducing that double standard break. Um, so I, the, I think, like we're alluding to here, the bigger picture is the um, is how modifiable, how compartmentalizable. I don't even know that's the word. How 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 well you can modify this technology, right? You can introduce the adenine-based editors. You can modify the CD117 to some other antibody, so you can target a different population. Um, you can do that cool approach that we covered last year in the science paper, where you modified the 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 T cells in vivo to target cardiac fibrosis, right? Um, and so these kinds of technologies are some of my favorite. The technology that can be applied to whatever cell population you want, whatever disease state that you're interested in. Uh, and then you mix and match. You mix and match with other technologies that can do something similar. Yes, the plug and play. I mean, that's the, the world we live in now. It seems like, you know, the horizons are unlimited. Um, one limitation of the CAR-T, a little segue there, uh, which has been revolutionary and changed the, the face of cancer treatment. And as we were talking about there, even like fibrosis, you talk about targeting any bad actor in the body. Um but one limitation to the CAR-T has been that it's not really great uh, on addressing solid tumors, right? Hematological malignancy has been, I mean, pretty much cured uh, by CAR-T technology, but solid tumors, not so much. Um, this is a story about that and the efforts 
to uh, address that unmet need. And it's focused on mesothelin. So mesothelin uh, is expressed in mes mesothelial cells that are pretty much the pleura, the peritoneum, even the pericardium has a lot of mesothelin. Um, uh, but overexpression of mesothelin is observed in about 30% of human cancers. Um, and because of that, uh, it makes an attractive source for T-cell-based adoptive therapies, CAR-T, so to speak, um, this chimeric antigen receptors. Uh, and CAR-T, as I said, it's been very effective, but hematological and blood-based, but solid tumors, including it's been used to try and target mesothelin before. Um, and it's been pretty ineffectual in addressing solid tumors. Right. And but part of the thing about that or one of the limitations it's thought about CAR T constructs is that they only use one of the six different T cell receptor subunits uh, and tethers them to this co-stimulatory domain. Right. And then those are expressed uh, as like a standalone uh, receptor in T cells that are targeted with lenti. But use lenti, get them into T cells. And they're expressed, right? But these CAR Ts, they're physically and functionally removed from the native T cell receptors. So the native T cell receptor complements over here, and then you got your CAR Ts, and they're they're distinct. They're not acting together, right? So that the idea behind this uh, technology and this treatment, new CAR T, it's called gabocabtagene autolucil. We call it gabocell, and it's a T cell receptor fusion construct that results from the fusion of this humanized uh, anti-mesothelin antibody um, and this human CD3 sigma subunit, right? And that's put into Lenti. And the way it works is that when you transduce T cells with that fusion, uh, it integrates to and reprograms the native CD3 complex so that they become activated upon recognition of the tumors uh, and mesothelins on a tumor surface, right? In a HLA independent manner. So this leverages the, the whole T cell receptor complement, you know, the native as well as this chimeric. Uh, and it's in, in my studies, it's shown that it results in improved T cell trafficking, long-term persistence and enhanced anti-tumor activity uh, compare when you compare to the just mesothelin targeted CAR T, the more traditional CAR T, if you can call them that, they're like three years old, but I guess they're dinosaurs at this point. Anyway, in the mouse models, those have been shown to work. And this story, which is from uh, a lot of uh, kind of this tripartite effort that was led mainly by uh, Rafit Hassan at the NCI, uh, Alfonso Quintas Cardama from uh, TCR2 Therapeutics, this biotech in Cambridge, um, that clearly has developed these supercharged T cell receptor fusion constructs. And David Hong, who's at uh, MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. And this was a phase one, phase two um, trial that's ongoing. And they uh, described the phase one results in patients with this treatment refractory mesothelin expressing solid tumors. And the point here was to evaluate the safety of the therapy, also to calibrate the, the dose that they were going to use for the for the phase two uh, of the trial. They got 32 patients that received uh, Gavocell at uh, increasing doses. Uh, very few of them, only three of those patients as a single agent, and most of them, 29 of those patients, was after lymphodepletion. Um, and in, um, in a subset of 30 that they could evaluate, they found there was an overall response rate, 
and a disease control rate that were 20% and 77% respectively. Overall six month survival was 70%. Um, so, I mean, let's be frank, this wasn't like a, a mind blowing result. I think the results showed encouraging anti-tumor activity. The, the test is ongoing, you know, the these things take time. Um, and, you know, it's a safety evaluation. They've still got to go into the phase two where they're doing the comparative to the reference, which is going to give you really clear results in terms of survival relative to control. Um, but I think this is really encouraging. And I like telling these stories because they really underscore the work in progress element of the translation of idea. You know, this was a amazing results in mouse. Now in the phase one, phase two, they're really trying to calibrate the dose. There was some kind of, there was some like, um, five bronchioalveolar hemorrhage that were noted. There's grade three pneumonitis. So yeah, it takes a little bit of empirical dosing to, to figure out what the recommended dose will be phase two. But I think that this is really an important illustration how we march forward with these uh, translational and really uh, world-changing studies and how long the timeline is. You know, CAR-T is a revolutionary discovery, Nobel Prize worthy but it's 20 years along which the arc of CAR-T really develops and is optimized and refined. And, and this is a brick in that wall. So I, I like to tell these stories and that's why I told it. A nice little nature medicine story about this GABA cell and its uh, transition from phase one to phase two. Yeah, I mean, I, I like what you alluded to there when it comes to the the timeline of these technologies. We hear about the downstream and the big amazing stories that are coming out now, but you know, these studies, CAR-T, all these modifications have been in the works for decades. Lipid nanoparticle got so much publicity because of COVID and, you know, its role in developing the modern mRNA vaccines. But again, those technologies have been in work for so long. And, you know, again, going on a bit of a tangent here, I don't think the general public often understands that they see that oh my goodness you know how were we able to develop these vaccines so quickly and these lipid nanoparticle strategies so quickly it just seems like it happened overnight but in reality it didn't scientists have been working for on these technologies for their entire career um, and there's so many case scenarios uh, of this as well. You know, Dr. Doudna, for example, has been working on this for a long time. Other folks in the CRISPR field. Um, it, but it's it's astounding and to to see the downstream because now we're actually starting to bring these technologies into the clinic. These CAR T based approaches. Um, I, I think focusing a little bit more on the study here. One thing that I was a little bit relieved about especially when you're talking about mesothelin uh, and, and you actually mentioned at the very beginning there it's it's found in the pericardium the incidence of pericarditis as a side effect here actually wasn't that prominent i think it was just an n of one or n of two so that's actually a big relief for me personally because a lot of these approaches you know pd1 inhibitors pdl all these you know immunotherapy approaches a big limitation is the cardiac side effects of, of a lot of these strategies um, you know, myocarditis and uh, uh, a lot of these other um, cardiac inflammation situations, which can be pretty devastating. 
So that was important to see. The other thing is, you know, I feel like we're stepping on the toes of the immunology podcast a lot more these days. I mean, there's so many cool studies that are coming out with CAR T-based modification. I guess it still links back to stem cell biology in some way. We're talking about hematopoietic stem cells. So the immunology, maybe we should do more of these cross-disciplinary podcasts, you know, with the immunology uh, podcast folks. We had a, a show out like that not too long ago, but it also tells you how intersected these fields are you know i mean immunology is i'm gonna go ahead and say it immunology is just an offshoot of stem, stem cell biology and uh don't kill me for for saying that uh brenda <laughs> i mean this is uh it's just a golden age for for immunology as well we like covering this kind of stuff it's fun both of our podcasts are living in a golden era and you guys are welcome to poach any stem cell story you want please be my guest a lot of ips derived car t tech out there sony schrepper get after it be my guest we're not exclusive um but yeah just to to round out your point there and another callback to the show you know talk about the arc you talk about how 20 years ago we we're still writing recipes for endoderm differentiation and here we are with vertex curing patients potentially, right? Well, all based on a very long art of science and discovery. And to underscore the point, the work is still being done at that most basic level as that dev cell story illustrated. So it's science of all types on this show and really exciting, all of it. Something we can talk about with another exciting scientist, our guest, Dr. Nathaniel Hipsch. Before we get there, I got a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies who'd like to introduce their one-step resource for researchers who are using or looking to use organoids in their experiments. Stem Cell's Organoid Information Hub provides scientists with instructional videos, educational webinars, expert interviews, technical tips, and curated publications to help researchers set up and optimize organoids as a research model in their labs. Learn more about organoid culture from the experts at Stem Cell. Visit www.stemcell.com slash discover-organoids. All right, everybody. Today, we have a special guest with us, Dr. Nathaniel Hipsch from Washington University in St. Louis, where he's assistant professor in biomedical engineering. The Hipsch lab focuses on fundamentally understanding how mechanical cues originating at cell-cell and cell-extracellular matrix contacts influence signaling and fate. They are especially interested in how those cues affect heart development and disease and how to leverage these cues to engineer 3D models of human tissue for disease modeling and drug discovery and to design new biomaterials for tissue regeneration. Nate, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. I mean, the heart is either a simple or a complex organ, depending on who you ask, right? I'm a fellow cardiac biologist, so we can talk all day about this. But from an engineering perspective, I think it's really exceptionally fascinating. You've got something that's constantly biomechanically active for 70 plus years in a human lifetime and can't afford to miss a beat, so to speak, right? I mean, it's also this it's a biological pump, but it's unique in a lot of ways because it can't repair or regenerate itself really well, at least in humans. Um, and it's constantly under the influence of these mechanical or sheer stresses that can respond to, uh, you know, external chemical or hormonal stimuli as well. So just to start things off, could you give us an overview of kind of the engineering applications that your lab is working on to, to model the function of this complex pump? Yeah. So I think to um, just to like uh, give you kind of a broad backed up overview, I think 
especially before mouse models became really popular, there was a lot of effort in cell biology to, if you will, trick cells outside of the body into behaving as though they're in the body. Um, one of the really famous works that I like citing all the time is work by uh, Mina Bissell's lab from the 1980s showing that you could uh, basically trick uh, mammary epithelial cells from mice into continuing to make milk um, in, in, in outside the body in vitro um, if you cultured them in a 3D extracellular matrix environment, in that case, matrigel, um, versus growing them in standard glass or plastic. They don't die. They just kind of lose their identity. So that, that work like that and other historical work, including work to culture chondrocytes in 3D, really inspires um, labs like mine to, again, try to trick cells, in this case, cardiomyocytes, into behaving as though they're inside the body, even though they're in a dish in a format where we can study them in high throughput. Um, we're especially interested in um, things that mimic preload and things that mimic afterload. Preload and afterload are kind of the the classic mechanical mechanical cues on uh, cardiomyocytes and heart tissue in the body. Um, and there's Although both of these uh, types of cues cause the cardiomyocytes themselves to get larger, cause them to change their physiology, um, preload and afterload have very distinctive effects, both clinically and in animal models. Um, and so in, in our lab, um, in our first generation of technologies, we tried to mimic the preload on the cells by controlling the stretch on the cardiomyocytes while they're at rest. Um, and the way we do that is by putting them into a tissue environment. And uh, basically by controlling the shape of the tissue, uh, we can control the way the tissue initially forms. So for um, people that are kind of mechanics inclined, what we control are called boundary conditions. Um, and for, for those of you that are more biologically inclined, what you can think of is imagine taking a, a sponge and soaking it full with water so that it swells with water. And now what you're gonna do is clamp the sponge at two specific points and then let it dry out. And what you'll find is that it will get stressed in particular places. And you can predict exactly where the stresses will occur based on where you apply those clips. Those are the boundary conditions. So for our um, trying to model preload, we've essentially modeled uh, changes in boundary conditions um, in we developed some um, exciting new ways to control the shapes of tissues um, that rely on uh, really easy to, to do 3D printing with uh, cheap stereolithographic printers. We're talking uh, printers that are on the order of $10,000. Um, um, and a big advantage of using the 3D printer over, say, using uh, clean room soft lithography, uh, sorry, clean room lithography to make a, a wafer uh, with SUA, this is kind of your standard microfab, um, is that our 3D printing approach that we um, we just published on this um, in May, and the, the first author, uh, Daniel Simmons, just uh, graduated. And just to put in a plug in for Daniel, he's looking for a job in biotech in the Bay Area. So please look up Daniel Simmons on LinkedIn. Um, but Daniel's approach, um, you don't have to have any clean room skills. You just need to 
be able to make a 3D design or get someone to make one for you, you submit that to the printer. And then uh, through a couple of uh, simple uh, molding steps, you have your silicone rubber device with whatever geometry you want. Um, and using that, there um, we've, uh, again, to try to use the shape of the tissue to control the stress fields, um, ultimately to try to impart a resting tension on the cells, we do see that the shape of the tissue plays a role in the physiology of the cardiomyocytes. And drugs that are very specific for the sodium channel, uh, call it like saxitoxin, really don't impact tissues that have the wrong geometry. Only when the cells are in a geometry that forces them to be stretched do they start responding to sodium channel blocks. So we think this is potentially um, a requirement for the cardiomyocytes either to express the channel protein or to activate the channel. So that's that's our, our work on pre-stress and pre-stress uh, slash preload. Um, and um, what we're interested in doing with this now is using these preload systems to understand arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. This is a disease, um, it's the second most common cause for um, young kids or young athletes to drop dead from an arrhythmia. Um, so even though it's a rare disease, it's a very common cause of deadly arrhythmias, unfortunately. Um, this disease was formerly called arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy because stereotypically it manifests in the right ventricle. Now, there are interesting ideas about how the developmental lineage about right ventricular cardiomyocytes might make them prone to this uh, particular disease. But just from a physiologic standpoint, um, some beautiful historical work by um, uh, Andre Lagersh and others points to the fact that the right ventricle is thinner and is therefore under more stretch um, as the heart gets filled um, during um, during the resting phase of the cardiac cycle. Um, it points to that stretch as being potentially causative for these uh, the the remodeling that occurs with this disease. So we're interested in understanding how the combination of genetics and mechanics affects arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. Now on the afterload end, um, um, we'll maybe come back to this later, but on the afterload end, we control how hard it is for the tissues to pump. We make them work mechanically against uh, substra substrata that are either very soft, very easy to deform, um, or things that are stiffer and harder to deform. And we find this has a big effect on the genotype-phenotype relationships we see in cells that have a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy phenotype. And may maybe we can come back to that in a bit because I you know, I just talked a whole bunch and maybe you have questions about the, um, the pre-stress preload stuff. Yeah, I mean, I got a ton of questions, Nate. I got a ton, but I mean, we're, you're, going, you're taking us really deep and that's what your lab does is like you deconstruct um, I, I would say, I mean, owing to that great example uh, from Bissell Lab, which was such a seminal idea and conceptual advance that, you know, taking cells in monolayer versus 3D, just that change uh, of configuration can endow more, you know, physiological behavior. Um, and, you know, that I think is is what's so exciting about bioengineering and the convergence of bioengineering with stem cell biology, right? I think we talked to a lot of bioengineers uh, and they're all in the same kind of neighborhood, right? I think the lay person goes right to like, oh, we're going to make organs. But in reality, 
what what you just described and what I think most bioengineers are doing are deconstructing these, you know, micro how cells become systems, right? And using those systems to to deconstruct disease mechanisms and tox and all that stuff. But I have to ask because I'm annoying. I'm kind of lay. I'm more biologically minded, and I'm I'm the stem cell guy. And I'm asking for a lot of idiots out there who want to ask, you know, when can we maybe make uh, organs? Not that not when. Forget that. But do you see a pathway? I know that the the point of a lot of your work is really to look on these micro scales. But do you see a pathway? to making bioengineered organs that are transplantable? Uh, or do you think that maybe that's kind of beyond the scope of what we're going to be doing um, in terms of biomedical applications of stem cells? I think making a true organ is a very tall order. Um, but I think we are already, um, just we collectively meaning the field, um, the field is already putting tissue grafts into large animals and people um, with quite a bit of success, I would say. Um, so while while I think I'm I'm not sure we're going to get to the point where we're making a complete heart that can completely replace a heart transplant. Um, I, I do think we're already, the field is already in the process of making small tissue grafts that can basically spare the function of uh, someone's less than functional heart to prevent them from needing the, the transplant. Um, I, I think one of the historically very interesting things that it doesn't necessarily come from a pluripotent stem cell field, it comes from kind of historical work from um, other therapeutic cell populations like bone marrow stromal cells is the notion that sometimes you can put cells in, into someone and the cells don't even need to survive very long. They can secrete useful, useful things. Um, they can trigger um, beneficial uh, uh, tissue remodeling from the immune system. Um, and I think the same thing may be true for pluripotent cells. And I think in a lot of cases, uh, we're going to learn that we don't necessarily need to have a one-to-one -one replacement of uh, the tissue that was lost. We can influence biology in a predictable way um, with exogenous cells. Yeah, and I think that's part of the amazing thing of being in this field for, for a while now. I mean, the iPS cardiomyocytes have been around for 15 plus years, and around 15 years. Uh, there's been such a rapid evolution in the application of what you can use these cells for. I mean, you alluded to some of the early phase clinical trials that are happening with some of these cardiac patches that are happening in Germany and you know are going to be initiating here pretty soon as well. But it's been such a rapid evolution in iPS cardiomyocyte biology. I mean, back in the day, we were so excited if we could just make these things and just see some twitching cells. But now differentiation and purification is pretty trivial. I mean, I've got high school students working on differentiations in the lab right now this summer. Um, so we can mass produce these things for toxicology, studying fundamental cardiac biology, and also using them for engineering applications. 
And, you know, there are a lot of challenges that we still have to address with IPS cardiomyocytes, maturity, of course, being the big one. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But I mean, is it, do you think it's official that the IPS cardiomyocyte and specifically the human IPS cardiomyocyte is the best cardiac muscle cell out there for scientific research right now? I mean, I'm sure I aggravated a bunch of folks who are still using like neonatal rat ventricular cardiomyocytes and all those kind of things, right? But we can't mass produce human cardiomyocytes in any other way, right? So do you think there's anything better? <laughs> if you're scoring my grant, then yes, <laughs> human IPSC cardiomyocytes <laughs> are the best source of human cardiomyocytes that you could use. Um, are the are the cells are the cells perfect and mature? Of of course not. Um, but one of the excellent things about being uh, affili affiliated with a major medical center here at here at WashU, we have um, our our uh, our medical school. Um, is affiliated with one of the largest transplantation clinics in the U.S., um, we can get these adult human cardiomyocytes. Uh, we typically will get them from a, a myectomy surgery where a, an incredibly skilled surgeon will shave off um, part of a overly hypertrophied uh, ventricle. So we, we can get these cardiomyocytes. A, adult human cardiomyocytes are are just incredibly difficult to work with, e even more difficult than adult rodent cardiomyocytes that are already um, challenging. Um, so they're, are they mature? Yes. Um, I think the best labs in the world can get these postnatal human cardiomyocytes to be cultured for a few weeks. Um, when you go beyond the top three or four labs, it's probably more like three days at best. Um, you have no control over the patient's genetics. Usually when we're getting cells from somebody, if we're getting cardiomyocytes, they're very, very sick. And one of the, th one of the things we're really interested in in my lab and other labs is the fact that with inherited diseases, there's a lot of people that are genotype positive that don't have the disease. You're never getting cells from those people. Um, so I think that the fact that we we know that we're going to be able to get the same cardiomyocytes in two weeks as we have this week, that's a very powerful thing with IPSC cardiomyocytes. Um, the fact that, as you said, we can make them unmasked, that's, this is important for tissue engineering applications where we, we do typically need lots more cells than we would need for sparse 2D cultures. Um, so these are all, uh, these are all beneficial. Um, there, there is a lot of, I feel like there's a lot of low hanging fruit. Um, I think one of the things that would be really great is if as a field, we could come to some consensus on methods for freezing the cardiomyocytes um, to be able to to stockpile them for when the, the differentiations are working real well, perhaps to have things to um, tide us over um, in, in times where the differentiations aren't working so well. But, um, you know, overall working with IPC cardiomyocytes, as you said, um, you can basically assume that most of the time you will get the differentiation. Um, it's, it's a lot more forgiving in that respect than some of the other um, iPSC tissue cell types, uh, like, uh, for example, beta islets. And 
I, you know, I'm not a developmental biologist, but maybe some of the the robustness of the differentiation comes from the fact that the heart is one of the first organs to form, and therefore, um, this developmental process can occur without input from a lot of other adjacent organs. Hmm. Yeah, I think that answer gets a one from the study section. Congratulations, Nate. But I mean, you alluded to it. We've alluded to it on the show a million times. Uh, the maturity gap, right, between IPS-derived and adult correlates. You just went into it. Um, and you've worked on it a bit, showing the metabolic cues as well as uh, mechanical stimuli derived from particular geometries, as, as you talked about a bit before in the intro there, uh, can all influence the physiology of IPS-derived cardiomyocytes. Can you, you know, drill down a little bit more on that element? And, and specifically speaking to the maturity question, like, I know there's methods to make them more mature, but like, is is that mature enough? And mature enough for what application? Is there, you know, is there a, a target out there? Of course, we'd all like them to go all the way to, you know, cardiomyopathy in an 80-year-old. But realistically speaking, you know, what, what do we need? What threshold uh, do you think we need? And, and for what sort of application would that be important? Well, so for... For transplanting a graft, um, at a bare minimum, the cells need to be electrically mature enough that they don't cause arrhythmias and work from uh, Chuck Murray and uh, Michael Flam and other people in the field really shows some really promising ways to get that um, maturity to happen, but also to really test carefully for it in appropriate animal models. So, you know, first do no harm, I think getting the cells to be electrically mature enough that they don't trigger arrhythmias, that's kind of a bare minimum um, for therapy. Um, we would probably also like for therapy that the contractile function is good enough um, that you would at least maintain the same ejection fraction um, as you would um, without putting the exogenous cardiomyocytes into the person. Um, so that's... Uh, that's um, the bare minimum. It would be ideal if the cells responded appropriately to things like adrenaline and other drugs. Um, so if we, in a, you can imagine a scenario where we artificially make the cells mature um, with certain drugs like maybe um, phenylephrine and we put them in, maybe we even put them into a person and they function normally, um, but maybe for some time after their transplantation, before they've kind of adapted to the environment and done more maturation in situ, maybe those cells don't respond appropriately to adrenaline. That wouldn't be ideal. Um, for in vitro stuff um, and disease modeling, I think the the most there, there's two critical things the um, and the, the this kind of this kind of way of thinking um, a, a lot of this is informed by my training with uh, Bruce Conklin and and Kevin Healy. Um, number one, if there is a highly uh, highly uh, prevalent disease um, like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and we have a mutation that's really strongly linked to that disease. So on, on ClinVer, it's, uh, it's a pathogenic variant. We really ought to be able to see some genotype-phenotype relationship 
if our tissue is mature enough. We should be able to see either at baseline or with appropriate chemical or mechanical stimulation that diseases that reproducibly manifest in um, an adult manifest in the in the cells in vitro. I think um, that's in at least in my lab, we've found that having some of the mechanical conditioning uh, with the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, having that afterload mimic of the stiff substrate seems to be very important for eliciting that genotype phenotype relationship. Mm -hmm. um, what I would like to be able to move to, and what I think the the field would also like to be able to move to, is to not only be able to show some aspects of the the disease manifesting in in the dish, but also to have specific biomarkers of the disease and also of the the response of the disease to treatment that we could then directly correlate to clinical biomarkers. Yeah, and I think part of it comes down, to, especially on the in vitro side of things, it's coming down to the tools that you have in your toolkit to actually do some of these evaluations at the the IPS cardiomyocyte level. And your lab certainly has a number of these, you know, in vitro systems and real time assessment technologies. I mean, I wanted to highlight one since uh, since we have a connection here. Uh, these fluorescent reporter cardiomyocytes that you developed when you were in Bruce Conklin's lab. In fact, you have one of these fluorescent reporter calcium lines, which are Phenomenal, and thank you for sharing those with my own lab. I mean, it's this uh, GCAMP reporter built into the AVS1 locus. So whenever you see the IPS cardiomyocytes contract, you can see them light up in green, which is super cool and really fun to work with. Um, so tell us how you're using some of the, these cutting edge tools in your lab to answer these questions of cardiomyocyte maturity, and in particular, the importance of real-time monitoring of cellular dynamics, like what you're doing with these fluorescent reporter lines. Yeah, sure. Um, so this this comes from some some hard work from a couple of other uh, uh, former trainees. This um, comes from uh, Daniel, uh, who I mentioned before, contributed, but also uh, Sheree Ogantuyo, who's doing his MD PhD at Mount Sinai, um, and David Shuften, who did his master's with us and is um, work um, pursuing work in like local tech technology industry in St. Louis. Um, so they developed a very automated way to go from these high-speed videos of cardiomyocytes and cardiac tissues to quantitative analysis of the action potentials um, that we get from voltage-sensitive dyes and the calcium transients that we get from GCAMP. Um, so this allows us to look at, um, indirectly look at uh, ion channels because certain parts of the action potential are regulated by certain ion channels. Um, and we can infer a lot about how functional the cells are and how mature they are from the shape of the action potential and calcium transient. Um, and as you alluded to, in real time, uh, we can see both how acute, but also how chronic um, exposure to drugs and mechanical um, stresses affects um, both the action potential uh, but also the integrated function, like the conduction velocity of the tissue. Um, and looking at how the conduction velocity evolves over time um, has kind of informed our way of thinking about how we can use uh, tissue geometry and um, this afterload surrogate to mature the tissue. Um, is that sort of getting at your question, Arun? 
Yeah, no, no, that's that's exactly what I'm getting at. I mean, part of it is, I mean, I had this dream. I think a lot of us in cardio mindset field have this dream where we're trying to use some of these biomechanical cues in combination with all these metabolic approaches to to generate this maturation cocktail, right? Something that you could just throw on an immature cardio mindset and within like a week. The, it'd be able to to mimic what you have in an adult human cardiomyocytes. So, you know, I think we have the individual components, but how do we combine all that together? And the other, I guess, maybe more important question than that is how do we democratize cardiomyocyte maturation, right? So we have these engineering approaches, mechanical stimulation, electromechanical stimulation that can mature cardiomyocytes. You know, for example, Casey Ronaldson Bouchard in Gordana's lab had that pacing paper that came out where you put these cells in the posts and you pace them for, for multiple weeks. But how feasible is that for, for any lab to adapt? So how do we just in general democratize maturation of cardiomyocytes? So that's a that's a layered question. I think first and foremost, approaches to lower the cost of working with the IPSCs and working with the cardiomyocytes themselves. So I think having a reliable supply of of cells is critical if you're gonna if if labs that are uh, are gonna use these techniques, especially labs that don't specialize in these things. Um, and I think the the lower cost is probably one of the reasons why um, some of the rodent lines remain attractive to some people, just because they can try a lot of things with them. So I think having um, lower, you know, low cost ways of maintaining the cells, and perhaps you know we need very very fancy, very reproducible types of media if we're doing a GMP manufacturing for cell therapy, but perhaps we don't require that for routine lab applications. Um, and then I think um, because no, no commercial device is going to be perfect, there are great um, pacing systems out there from uh, companies like Ion Optics. The C-Pace is an example of a commercial device that anyone can buy and easily use to pace uh, cells or tissues. Uh, but their, their device may not be perfectly compatible with uh, everyone's tissues or cells. Um, I, I think this is where um, part of the democratization process involves collaboration amongst groups with different expertise. Um, and it it's admittedly it, it can be as a trainee i remember it being somewhat um it's somewhat of a big ask to um do high risk experiments with cells that took me a month to make um but i think if we want to get these cells into everyone's hands we have to find ways to de-risk those um those types of approaches and de-risk collaborations Yes. Get the cells to the people if we want to get the cells in the people, right? Yeah. I want to uh, shift gears a bit, talk about your uh, home institute there. Uh, watch you at St. Louis Biomedical Powerhouse, with capital P, uh, receiving the third most NIH funding. And, and it's like kind of a virtual tie for second with Stanford, Johns Hopkins, and Penn. Um it has a really strong imprint in, in the field of stem cells and bioengineering. 
um, really uh, rings out to me just because at the ISSCR meeting, I was talking to Rowan Carvis, uh, a postdoc from Thor Thunison's lab. She was presenting her amazing work with these human embryo models. And I asked her what it was like to do such groundbreaking and controversial work in a state uh, that has been historically, I mean, more kind of a, I guess, blue state, more liberal, but but really skewing a bit conservative on social, political, healthcare, medical science issues, particularly in, in the last decade. Rowan told me that she was insulated from that quote unquote noise uh, by her PI Thor. So, so I'll ask you as a PI, having been trained primarily in California and Boston, these kind of bubbles of progressive scientific um, endeavor, is, is there another another layer of resistance to your work uh, at WashU um, in St. Louis uh, that, that we in more quote unquote supportive states don't experience? What's your take there? So I'm, I think... Um, St. Louis and Kansas City are very different than the rest of Missouri. Um, the other thing um, about our work is that um, induced pluripotent stem cells are, just fortunately for us, are far less controversial than embryonic stem cells that some other folks work with. Um, um, I, I, I will say, um, you know, we we carefully hold our breath every time there's um you know a new a new election in, in Missouri just like everyone in any uh, area probably does these days um but we've been i think we've been fortunate um and yes being being in a being in a blue bubble in a red state has has a lot of uh perks um as well as um as uh, as its minuses um i i will say um people in the midwest tend to be very um actually very very um eager to become involved in clinical trials themselves hmm. um so that's that's been a very um a very fortunate thing for us um i think Yes, there there's always the the political considerations, um, but um, as a as a trainee, I know people here that are able to afford to buy a house. Mm. Um, so there are um, uh, quite a few benefits of being in the Midwest. Um, and um, another nice thing about our institution is that um, I well. Yes, WashU is definitely a powerhouse institution. Um, I've, I I tell everybody it feels like we're competing, but we are competing with other institutions rather than competing with one another. It very much feels like we're competing, and the way we compete is to be on the same team. And so that collegial environment, um, both um, as a faculty, I've experienced, and I see my trainees experience has been very healthy um, and very supportive of collaborative uh, research. Um, and I think the the university and the city have done an excellent job of uh, protecting uh, trainees in general, but also trainees from vulnerable populations from some of the, um, the very real 
dangers that are present in um, in red states like Missouri. Well, thanks to you for doing the work. And I mean, I know with the support of all your peers and, uh, you know, amazing trainees at a, I will say it, powerhouse university that is the home team. I think, uh, you know, we have only really great things to look forward to from your lab and from all your collaborators. A lot of exciting stuff going on at WashU. Before we let you go, though, we have a couple of peripheral questions we want to get at. Uh, first, one, if you could answer any single scientific question, regardless of your expertise or chosen field, what would that be? Yeah, so I'm I'm really interested in this, this uh, general finding that certain signaling pathways seem to be very sensitive to whether you have the cells in the right environment and other pathways aren't. And I would, I would really like to be able to know, can you predict just from either the, the structure of the molecules involved or features of where they are in the cell, whether certain signaling pathways are going to be mechanosensitive or environmentally sensitive? <laughs> I have to laugh because we ask that, that question sometimes people and they have like a whimsical answer, but a, a bioengineer comes with a very specific question. It makes me think that this isn't, this isn't like if you could answer any single scientific question, it's a question of when you're going to answer that science question. So I'll look forward to that. Finally, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given, professional or not? I think the best piece of professional advice I've been given is to get advice from lots of different people and to listen to the aggregate of the advice rather than to rely on how passionate one person is about the advice they're giving you. <laughs> yes, that's good advice, particularly in a, I would say, mixed bag of a political environment that you're currently find yourself in. But also, yeah, I think we're all the product of the real zealous and you know fevered ambition of our mentors we can all think of those in our in our past uh scientific experience that have influenced us yeah but we got to distill that down to our own view and nate i think you've done a great job of bringing your own view to science and sharing that with us today and we really appreciate that uh looking forward to your next story i know you've got some on bioarchive right now looking forward to see when that hits the uh deck and uh looking forward to having you on the show sometime soon again thank you so much for sharing good talking to you both all right that brings us to the end of this episode don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers you can also reach out to us on twitter at stem cell podcast or by email info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. We'll be back at you in a couple of weeks with more. Until then, get after yourselves, people.